All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, down through chapter 9, verse 8. Again, it all really goes together as a package of miracle stories that show Jesus' authority. That's what Matthew's doing here in this whole section of chapters 8 and 9. He's stringing together, kind of pasting together snapshots from the life of Jesus that help us see the authority and the power of Jesus. So he's already shown us three miracle stories uh, earlier in chapter 8. Then Matthew showed us a little snapshot where Jesus did some teaching about discipleship and his words about discipleship were deeply challenging based on his authority. In fact, the challenge was so great in those words and claimed so much for Jesus that it would naturally raise the question, particularly to the original audience, who does this man think he is? And so now Matthew is going to show us three more pictures of Jesus' power and authority that help answer that question, who is this man? Well, these stories that we're about to look at help us see that Jesus indeed has the kind of power to command the allegiance he did to the would-be disciples in the previous section. So recall that the last section opened with Jesus saying, let's get in a boat and go to the other side. Well, that's where we pick up here in verse 23. And so verse 23 says, when he got into the boat. So verses 18 through 22 were Jesus wanting to get into the boat and these two would-be disciples coming to him, Jesus responding to them. Now he gets into the boat and his disciples followed him. From there, we get miracle story number one in this section, and it has to do with a storm. Look what happens. Verse 24. And behold, a violent storm developed on the sea so that the boat was being covered by the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually known for these kinds of storms that could just spring up out of nowhere. Everything can look pretty good, good day for sailing, and then out of nowhere, winds rush down from the eastern hills, whip up the seas, and cause all sorts of problems. That's what happens here. And so they set out uh, to sail across the Sea of Galilee when a storm just breaks out out of nowhere. It's described here as a violent storm, and the boat is being uh, tossed and covered by the waves. I'll put some pictures in the study hub of the remains of a first century boat that was used on the Sea of Galilee and uh, kind of a model that they built of it. So you get a sense of the size of the boat. We're not talking a little tiny boat. It's a decent sized boat that they're in, the kind of boat that could easily hold 12 to 15 people. So we're not talking a tiny little boat, and yet this storm is so great that waves are now coming up over the side of the boat and here's Jesus asleep. We actually learn from Mark's version of the story that he's asleep in the stern, in the back of the boat. And it was common to have a cushion back there for this very sort of thing, for sleeping on or sitting on or anything like that. So Jesus is laid out. He's tired. It's been a busy day. He's asleep in the back of the boat. And they came to him in the midst of the storm, recognizing the peril they're in, and woke him up saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And we really should remember that some of these guys, at least, are fishermen. They're familiar with the sea. It doesn't necessarily mean they were always comfortable with the sea, but they're familiar with it. And uh, they realize its power, and they realize what's going on, and they recognize they're in a desperate situation here. And so they come, they wake Jesus up, and say, Lord, we're, we're about to die. Save us. How does Jesus respond? We'll look at verse 26. He said to them, 
Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? There's his nickname for them again, you little faiths. Why are you afraid? We're afraid because it seems like we're about to drown out here in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. From this violent storm that was tossing them all over the sea and filling the boat up with water to glassy seas at the word of Jesus. And this shatters their categories and ours. This is really is like the ultimate, I don't know what just happened moment. No one, no one in their day and age expected it, this. Now, to us, for those of us who've heard this story, who are familiar with Jesus, like, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus, of course, he can do this kind of stuff. But put yourself in their shoes. I mean, they didn't know the full end of the story. Jesus looks just as human as they do. He got up that morning and had his breakfast, right? They've seen him eat. They've seen him get tired. He looks just as human as they are. And yet here he just barks out a command and wind and waves obey him. And in their Jewish worldview, that's not possible. It's not possible because only God can control the sea. Let me read you a couple of passages from the Psalms, the kinds of passages that these Jewish men had grown up with and were familiar with. Psalm 107, verse 28 and 29 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Or Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling sea. When its waves rise, you still them. As Jews, Jesus' disciples grew up with passages like these that filled their mind and shaped their belief systems. And in their mind, there is a creator God, and the creator God is the only one who can control the sea. The sea was viewed as a place of chaos and unpredictability, and sometimes it was even viewed as like a, a portal, a gateway to the, uh, the underworld, the realm of evil and chaos and all that, and only God could control it. But Jesus here in this boat, in this storm, he didn't pray for God to save them. No, he does what only God is supposed to be able to do. He calms the sea by his command. Just as in the Psalms, Jesus stills the storm and hushes the wave like God does. This ordinary looking man, this man who just moments ago was sound asleep in the back of the boat, just barked out an order. And nature obeyed. And so verse 27, the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's how much authority he has. Like even the winds obey him and the waves, the waves of the sea, they obey him. That's like divine kind of authority. And that's why he can also command absolute loyalty and allegiance, as he just did to the two would-be disciples, just as they were about to embark on the sea voyage. Now, remember that they're sailing to the other side from Capernaum, and they land on the east side of the sea in Gentile country. So we get story number two, and this story has to do with demons and pigs. Look at verse 28. When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes. First thing to note is that phrase, other side. 
experts say that this has less to do with sailing in a particular direction, say west to east or something like that, and more to do with sailing to a different political region around the sea. And the main regions were Galilee, uh, Galanitis, and the Decapolis. And so in this case, they're sailing what appears to be into the region of the Decapolis, the region of the Gadarenes. Now, there's some question as to the exact location uh, where this event happened because there are actually different places mentioned in the various manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. But Gadara, or the Gadarenes, has good textual support and there's good geographical reasons for it to work. You can uh, learn more about that in the Lexham Geographical Commentary on the Gospels. What we need to know here is that Gadara was a large Roman city on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So you got to picture your geography. Galilee is on the northwestern side and Gadara is a Roman city in the Decapolis on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the city itself was inland a ways from the sea, but it actually held lands going all the way from the city to the seashore. So the country or land of the Gadarenes, as mentioned here, was the lands between the sea and the city. And in fact, there actually was a very large harbor there on the southeastern uh, portion of the coast, the largest harbor on the entire Sea of Galilee. And it was a harbor that served this region of the Gadarenes. And so it appears that they have sailed into this harbor and landed there and now are making their way through this area that was a part of the Gadarene holdings, even though there might have been some small little villages in these, this area. And here's what happens as they're making their way through this land. Two demon-possessed men confronted him as they were coming out of the tombs. And so these they're in this region. There's a burial area in this region. And there's these two men who are possessed by demons that uh, we learn from the other Gospels have been living in the tombs. And so they come out of the tombs and they confront Jesus. And the text tells us a little description about these two demon-possessed men. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass that way. Like, this is a dangerous area. People wouldn't go in this area. These men were uh, violent and would attack people who went in that area. So people didn't go that way. Jesus' disciples, either they didn't know that or Jesus was on a mission to meet this man. We don't know. Uh, but uh, they're passing this way and they're confronted by these demon-possessed men. And here's what happens. Verse 29. And they cried out saying, what business do you have with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So these demons confront Jesus, approach him, and they challenge Jesus by saying, what do you have to do with us? And they call him by a royal title, son of God. This title that has royal implications, powerful and implications of, implications of authority, which is the theme of this whole little section. In the last scene, the twelve wonder in awe, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But these demons don't wonder. These demons know who he is. And so they call him son of God. And they ask, have you come here to torment us before the time? Probably referring to the time of final judgment. They know their destiny. They know their end. And they know who Jesus is. And so they're wondering if he's come to torment them before the time. 
So the scene has been set. It's Jesus with his disciples in Gentile territory uh, on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. You have these demon-possessed men. They're violent, and now they're confronting and accosting Jesus and his disciples. And here's the way it plays out. It's actually rather humorous. Look at verse 30. Now, there was a herd of many pigs feeding at a distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. We don't understand all the things about the spiritual world, demon possession and all that. But these demons, uh, they, they want a host of some sort. And so they asked to go into these pigs, which, by the way, uh, the pigs are one of the things that confirms we're definitely in Gentile country, right? If you're uh, in Jewish lands, there are no pigs. Pigs are unclean animals. And so we're in the Decapolis, which is predominantly Gentile. And there's this big herd of pigs and the demons want to go into this herd of pigs. We actually learn from the other gospels that it's not just two demons, three demons, four demons, that it's many demons. In fact, they refer to themselves as legion, like a Roman legion, which was like 600 men. So we don't know how many demons, but it's a lot of demons. And they they beg Jesus to go into these pigs. Um, again, the story emphasizes Jesus' authority. These demons are afraid of him. They recognize that he has power over them. And so they're begging him over and over. Literally, when it says begged him, it's It's continuous action. They're begging him over and over if they can go into the pigs. And Jesus gives permission. And all of this speaks to Jesus' power and authority. So Jesus said to them, go, go into the pigs. And so these demons come out of these two possessed men and they enter into the pigs. And what happens? Well, uh, behold, the whole herd rushed down a steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the waters of the Sea of Galilee. And the herdsmen, those who had been tending the pigs, well, look what happens. Verse 33, and the herdsmen ran away, went into the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. The people are actually more comfortable with what they know than they are with Jesus and his power. They're more comfortable with men being tormented by demons and a region of their area that they're afraid to go by because of the violence of those men. They're more comfortable with that than with a man who has the power and authority to vanquish demons. And so they beg Jesus, plead with Jesus to leave their region. So Jesus does. Jesus leaves, and that then leads to a third snapshot here that Matthew records for us. And this third snapshot has to do with a paralyzed man, and it's in chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. So look what happens. Getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee and came to his own city. So they sail back across the Sea of Galilee, and they come back to Capernaum, his own city. And they, it doesn't actually specify who, it just says they brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a stretcher, lying on some sort of makeshift cot, right? Like uh, sticks with something between them. They bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. Now, if you want more details on this story, you can look at Mark chapter 2. What Mark tells us there, one of the things that's important is they couldn't get through to Jesus because of the crowd, so they actually climbed onto the roof and dug through the roof and lowered the man down in front of Jesus in order to get to Jesus. So they come bringing this paralyzed man, and here's how Jesus responds. 
and seeing their faith, that is their action of doing what they can to get this man to Jesus because he needs help, shows their faith. It makes their faith visible. And one of the things that actually shows up repeatedly in the miracle stories in Matthew 8 and 9 is this notion of faith. Some people have faith. Some people don't have faith. Some people need faith. Some people have little faith. In fact, often it's the disciples that have little faith. And so in addition to showing us Jesus' authority, Matthew is also showing us the proper response to that authority, faith, or another way to say it is confidence in Jesus. And these men clearly have it, and they're bringing this man to Jesus, and they're going to do what they can so that Jesus can take care of their friend who's paralyzed. And Jesus said to the man who was paralyzed, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. This is not what they expected. They, they wanted him to be able to walk. They wanted him to be made whole. They weren't expecting this response. Your sins are forgiven. And the reason for that is probably because this is the man's greatest need. Some people see a connection between this man's paralysis and sin, perhaps. And that's the reason why Jesus does say these words. And while that's possible, it's not necessary because not all Jewish thought and not certainly all biblical teaching uh, made this connection. And so there's no real reason to assume that's the case. The key thing here is the emphasis on forgiving sins, which further demonstrates Jesus' authority. To receive forgiveness in their cultural context, you were supposed to go to the temple and you were to do the proper things in the temple for forgiveness. Jesus is offering it apart from the temple. And they all knew that only God can kind of offer blanket forgiveness of sins. And so Matthew has shown us Jesus' authority over disease. He's shown us Jesus' authority over nature and the winds and the waves. He's shown us Jesus' authority over legions of demons. Well, now he extends that authority to the power to forgive sins. And that's really the primary point. And the people sitting in the crowd who witnessed this, they get that point. At least some of the religious leaders do. And look how they respond in verse 3. Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man's blaspheming. Again, in Mark's account, he clarifies why they say that. Mark clarifies, well, that's because only God can forgive sins. They know that. And that's why they respond this way. He's blaspheming. He's claiming to have a prerogative of God, and that's blasphemy. Jesus, verse 4, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk? I mean, Jesus could just say your sins are forgiven and how are they going to prove him wrong? How are you going to demonstrate that it didn't happen? Right? And so in that sense, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. If Jesus says get up and walk and the guy doesn't get up and walk, well, then they know that Jesus is false and he doesn't have that power. So in that sense, it's harder because in that case, it's immediately obvious whether it worked or not. And so Jesus asks the question, and then he goes on to say and show that he actually does have the very authority to forgive sins. Look at verse 6. He says, but so that you may know. Notice that's the purpose. I'm about to do this miracle, and there's a very specific reason why I'm going to do it. Here's the purpose. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralyzed man, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. Notice how Jesus uses the word authority, the key word for this section in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we learn here is that his authority includes the authority to forgive sins. 
that's not just any authority. That's big authority. And he has that authority as the son of man. Notice he uses that self-description here. Know that the son of man has this authority. And we mentioned that in a previous recording that the background for this is Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees one like a human being, one like a son of man. But this son of man is exalted to God's right hand, sits side by side with Yahweh, and reigns over the kingdom of God over all the earth. And so it's an exalted royal title. And Jesus is the son of man. And being the son of man gives him the authority to forgive sins. And what's the proof? What's the proof that Jesus can forgive sins? Well, he heals the man right there in public, in front of everybody, where any and all could verify and see that indeed, no, that man was paralyzed and now he's walking. Even his opponents could see that. And so what happens? Well, look at verse seven. And the man, he got up, and went home. The paralyzed man was healed, which Jesus connects to his uh, proof that he has the authority to forgive these sins. And so he got up and he went home. And when the crowds saw this, they were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, as we kind of wrap this section up, let's just reflect a little bit on what Matthew has shown us. The stories Matthew has put together push our understanding of Jesus and his authority to new links, new heights. I mean, Jesus can do things that only God is supposed to be able to do. It goes beyond controlling the wind and the waves. He's got authority to do that. It goes beyond authority over legions of the dark powers. He's got authority over them, but he also has the authority to forgive sins. And this pushes our understanding of who Jesus is in new directions. I mean, he's not just your average ordinary human being. He's not just your average ordinary prophet or holy man. He can do things that only God can do. And so in verse 8, when we see the reaction of the crowd, it really, it really speaks to us as to what our response and our reaction should be. They were awestruck and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And so when we look at Jesus, may we too react that same way, awestruck and glorifying God at the power and the authority and the magnificence of Jesus. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the Listener's Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's only possible because of people's generous support. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com, listenerscommentary.com, clicking the Give button, and it'll take you to a page where you can put in a dollar amount, click a little box that says Make This Monthly, and you can set up a monthly donation, or you can give a one-time donation. You can also sign up through the Study Hub and just click Sign Up in the Study Hub box, and it will take you to a page where you can uh, choose the amount you want to give, and then you'll get access immediately to some of those resources inside the Study Hub. So thanks a ton for your support.